Begin reading with verse number 15. John 17, 15. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou wouldst keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. We'll be looking at the world this afternoon, but in a different context from what we learned this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray for your guidance, your conviction. We pray that you'd waken our hearts to our responsibilities and our great opportunities. Bless your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Most everyone here, I'm sure, has heard the statement that Christians are people who live in the world, but they are not of the world. As parts of speech in that statement, the words in and of are used as prepositions. In the English language, I am told there are about 70 prepositions. Almost all of them are very short like that, no more than five letters. Most of them are two or three letters. They are often used to express some sort of relationship, some sort of context. And as we see in that, that statement, the context that we're referring to in this case is the world. This afternoon, I'd like to use our scripture to bring out not two prepositions in regard to the world, but four of them, four that we find here in this scripture. Each of them highlight certain important aspects of our relationship as Christians to the world. Here in John 17, we are given divine permission to eavesdrop on the prayer of the Son to the Father, Christ Jesus to his heavenly Father. Among some of the topics that are discussed here, Jesus prays for his disciples. He prays for us. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest me them, or them me, and they have kept thy word. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Even though they were the elect of the Father, it was still important that Christ Jesus pray for those twelve, the apostles, as he prays for us. Six verses later, Having introduced the subject of the world, once again, Christ prays for us within that worldly context. While still praying, he says that Christians are in the world, but not of the world. They are above or beyond the world, and yet at the same time they are sent into the world. I gave you five prepositions there. 
We'll just look at four of them. This pretty well summarizes our responsibility as children of God in relationship to our human environment, to the world. Just uh, four points, four verses. Verse 15. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. Why are you here? Why are we here? The question has nothing to do with this church building. Why are you as a living human being, why are you as an individual with life in your lungs, your heart beating away, why are you a member of the human race? People have been asking that question since the very beginning, I suppose. But since the arrival of uh, uh, the theories of evolution, I suppose we've been asking that question a lot more. When I was a teenager, my friends were asking that question. They were singing those songs. Why are we here in this world? That sort of thing. The person without Christ may have a hard time answering that question. But... For the Christian, it shouldn't be difficult at all. We have more than Darwin to help us answer. We have more than Nietzsche to help us answer that question. You are here because your Lord and Savior wants you to be here. Yes. That's it. We will get to a more specific reason in just a few minutes, but the basic answer is it is God's will that you be here. That is the answer, whether we're talking about a baby in the nursery or a centenarian in hospice. You are still in this world because God wants you to be in this world. That's the answer, whether we are Christians or still a child of wrath. But especially you as a Christian, you are here because it is God's will. Your Savior has asked his heavenly Father, do not remove these people until the ordinary course of their lives run out. You're here because it's God's will. The word world, Austin didn't get into the depths of this this morning, the word world here is cosmos. Many Greek experts tell us that that at its root Cosmos refers to an orderly arrangement. All we have to do is uh, spend a little time outdoors and we see that this creation is an orderly arrangement. Everything is falling into its place and if some certain uh, ingredients were removed, life would be gone. We are X number of miles from the sun if we were more or less there would be no life in this world. God has established the laws in regard to uh, uh, water, evaporation, rain, that sort of thing. If that changed, there'd be no life in this world. It's an orderly arrangement that we have been set in. Today's world may not be as beautiful as the original creation. It may not be as wonderful as the Garden of Eden, but it is still awe-inspiring. We still should be moved by what we see out there. And yet in a practical sense, the order of the original cosmos was 
disrupted by the introduction of sin. When Adam sinned, God cursed his creation. So despite the orderliness of it, there is, uh, or there are added ingredients that uh, don't always make it pleasant. But still it runs on the same rules, shall we say. So the machinery or the laws which God has instituted may produce hurricanes, may produce deadly blizzards, or beautiful sunsets, wonderful waterfalls, mountains, that sort of thing. However, it is in the context of today's chaos that Jesus prayed, Father, don't take them away. Let them stay here. Don't remove them. Notice the word take. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world. The word is translated take 25 times. But nearly 60 times it is translated take up or take away or lift up. This could be easily applied to taking people up in the way that the Lord took Enoch up or Elijah up. Translation. Someone might suggest that the Lord Jesus is praying that the Father delay the transfiguration of the saints. No, I don't believe that. It's on the calendar, shall we say. It's going to take place when the Lord wants it to take place. I think the statement is much more simple than that. Death is the usual means by which God takes his people from the world unto himself. That's the usual way. Simply put, Jesus is praying that these, his disciples, live long, useful lives for God's honor and glory. He is praying for us. But in this regard, remember, Christ knew what was going to happen to those 12 disciples. He knew how evil the world was and he is. He knew exactly how Satan would desire to crush those disciples, put an end to the way that was referred to this morning, Christianity. Jesus knew that nearly all of his apostles would die horrible early deaths, nearly all. He knew what John was going to suffer through his lengthy life and the persecution against him. He knew about the persecution of the Jews against the Christians. He knew about the persecution that the Romans would inflict on the children of God. He was aware of those things. Furthermore, Christ knows all about us. What is going to befall us in the next 12 months or the 12 years that might be before us? He knows about our weaknesses. He knows about our pains. He knows about your back aches. He knows about your lung problems and uh, uh, your lack of uh, thinking ability. Oh, I'm sorry, that's another group of people. Uh, he knows about all our weaknesses. He knows how some of your family have turned against you, hating your Savior. And still he prays, I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world. Here we are. Because Christ wants us to be here. Here we are. We're here because we have work to do. There are some saints 
who want to live off the grid, quote unquote, want to live away from the world while still being in God's creation. I don't believe that's God's plan. It's not Christ's will that we be taken out of the world. Therefore, it shouldn't be our will to be taken out of the world. Praise the Lord that we have a Savior, a mediator, someone to intercede for us in the midst of the problems of this world. But I'm in such pain. I'm apparently so useless. I am so worthless. I can no longer do the things that I did 30 years ago or 20 years ago or six months ago. You are not useless or worthless until, until the Lord tells you it is so. Find those things that you can do to serve the Lord and serve the Lord. Do those things that will please Him. And He will make it apparent that you're done when He takes you out of the world. In the meantime, stay busy. It's Christ's prayer that the Father should keep them from the evil while they're still in the world. Most commentators say that the evil is referring to the evil one, Satan. I probably have said that in the past. It is probably in that book that I wrote on John 17. But having spent a little more time reflecting on it, I'm not so sure that we should say this is speaking of, of Satan. Couldn't the Lord Jesus use the devil's name? Keep them from the evil. Seems to me that since the context is the world, then Christ is talking about the evil of the world. We have three deadly enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And I think the Savior is talking about one of those three in this particular case. And in this prayer, he prays for our protection in this evil world. And oh, how we need his constant protection, his blessing, to be able to keep ourselves from the evil of this world. So here in this verse, we clearly seen that we are, see that we are in the world. It is God's will that we be in the world. Even before we get to the next verse, however, we're not of the world. At least we're not of the evil of the world. The evils of this world are not supposed to be found in the citizens of heaven. We have the prayers of Christ to support us in this separation, in this segregation. But here's a point. There is a point. When the joys and the beauties of this world can become evil. The world has thousands of diversions, even for the child of God, all of which could become evil if we permitted them. For example, how many people, while still thinking they will spend eternity in heaven, are on most days, not 
today in particular, but we'll include today, on any given Lord's Day are not in the house of God worshiping the Lord. They expect to be in heaven when they die, but the rest of the time they worship themselves or they worship their creation. They're, they're hunting, they're fishing, they're, they're water skiing, or maybe today they're out running their snowmobiles through the, through the mountains. But they're not in the house of God. How many people use the Lord's money to fund otherwise harmless hobbies? Nothing wrong with the hobby, but they're taking the Lord's money to do it. And at what point does our love of sports become sinful? When the Super Bowl takes us from the house of God on, on a Sunday night? Or is it months earlier when the upcoming game has us focusing on what could happen this afternoon and we're not focusing on what is being preached in the morning? Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee. Praise God that our mediator is praying for us. Yes. In verse 16, the Lord continues his prayer. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for us. We are risen with Christ. We are dead with Christ. Our lives are hid with Christ in God. Therefore, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, we shall also appear with him in glory. So why do we so often set our affection on things below rather than on things above? The answer, of course, is that living beside our new nature in Christ, or is it within, is it around? Don't know which preposition to use in this case. There along with our new nature in Christ is the old nature that we were born with, our sinful nature. Paul described that in Romans chapter 7 when he said, I know I should do these good things and I don't do them because it's uh, the evil that's within me. I could quote that and you could probably quote it back at me. So I won't read it. As Jesus says, we are not in this world. We're not of this, excuse me, we're not of this world. And then he further qualifies that by saying, even as I am not of the world. On the evening of that prayer, if it was an evening, Christ was physically in the world, even as we are physically in the world. But how was he not of the world? His citizenship? His loyalty? Uh, the residency of his heart? His thoughts? His joys? Whatever the details, notice that Jesus describes his disciples as already even as he was. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. This might refer to something like... Uh, the possession of the same kind of heavenly nature as the Savior. 
course, we are not divine, but we are children of God, even as he is the perfect child of God. We are not of the world, even as Christ is not of the world. But is there any evidence of that? There was in Jesus' life evidence that he was not of this world. We should have the same sort of proof that we are not of this world. Certainly the world had no control over our Lord. The sinful temptations of the world could never overcome him. He wasn't bound to the same laws of human government, whether secular or religious, which are laid upon others. He was not lawless. But he did not put Caesar or uh, the Sanhedrin over the Lord, his father. He didn't seek for worldly applause. He wasn't looking for earthly rewards. If I might use the word, Christ's goals were not the same as the world's goals. So he didn't have time for the common entertainment of his society. Government bashing, cockfighting, I don't know, Olympic sports. They did have that sort of thing those days. Verse 17 teaches us that in some ways Christians are above and beyond the world. Jesus prayed for us, asking the Father, sanctify them. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. At its basic meaning, to sanctify simply means to set apart, but it has an additional meaning in the scripture. It means to make holy, set apart to the Lord. These disciples, all true children of God, are already set apart by the grace of God unto the Lord. Despite the erroneous teaching of some, every Christian is a saint, sanctified, set apart. We are already not of the world. So if we're already not of the world, why is the Lord Jesus saying, sanctify them, set them apart? Not everyone agrees with me, but I believe there's a difference between positional setting apart or sanctification and the real practical holiness, practical sanctification, which comes through Christian growth. I believe that every Christian is a saint. He's holy because he's enrobed in the righteousness of Christ. But it only takes a few minutes hanging around with me to see that uh, Oldfield is less than perfect in righteousness, in holiness. I can look back over the decades since my salvation. I see progress in godliness. But there are still so many areas which are less than perfect. My love, my zeal. My humility, my faith. I need the prayers of the Lord Jesus on my behalf. Father, sanctify that man. Father, sanctify that man. And how I praise the Lord that my Savior is still interceding for me. 
Of course, I know that I have a lot of responsibility in this matter. If I don't choose to be more like Christ, I will never be more like Christ. At the same, at the same time, I need the Lord's assistance. That's not a good word to use. If I don't deal with my sins, if I don't strive for improvement in godly behavior, I will not grow in the Lord. No matter how diligent the Savior is in praying for me. Maybe that's a part of the prayer. That Oldfield might be more diligent in his application. I know that without the Lord's direct intervention and aid, there will never be any more holiness in me than there is at this particular moment. Without the ministry of the Holy Spirit, there will never be any spiritual progress, any true sanctification. The apostle refers to this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, when he talks about sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience. Sanctification of the Spirit. This is what we all need. Growing practical holiness. The Lord Jesus himself praying about this sort of thing on our behalf. And what is the primary tool of this sanctification? Tis the word. When I first started thinking about this message, I was hoping that it would be... Uh, a joyful, uplifting message, which the Lord gives to me from time to time. Something that will keep you all awake. Something that would uh, put a smile on your face. It just didn't turn out that way the more I spent time on it. It's not one of those uplifting ones. I found it harder and heavier than I expected. But it is in the heavy things, and I'm not saying this is a good example, but it's in the heavy things of the preaching of the word where we actually do any growth, where we actually see our problems, where we actually move forward. Sometimes we need to be slapped in the side of the head. Paul tells us that Christ loves his church. Christ loves this church and the people who make it up. So he gave himself for it that he might sanctify it and cleanse it by the washing of the water with the word. Yes. The preaching of the word, the teaching of the word, the application of the word. That he might present that church a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. It's through the ministry of the word, the application of the word to our lives that we make progress in becoming more like the Savior, more like the Master. It's not a psychological thing. It's not simply an emotional thing. It's a biblical process. Father, I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst sanctify them through thy truth. It is in this setting apart, in this sanctification progress, that we find ourselves in this world. But at the same time, we are above it and beyond it because of this sanctification. And it is all with a purpose. Verse 18. 
as thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Christians are in the world, but not of the world. We are above and beyond the world, and yet we are sent back into the world, as the Father hath sent his Son into the world. Why did the Father do that? When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. And Paul says that you and I might receive the adoption of sons. The Son of God became incarnate to do basically two things. Number one, to reveal the Father who had been forgotten by everybody by that time. And number two, to give his life a ransom for many. To save souls. And of course the Lord Jesus fulfilled these purposes perfectly. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I sent them into the world. Notice the tiny word as. As thou hast sent me. That too is a preposition. It can be used in other ways. But notice in this case how it ties the Lord Jesus' authority to the Father's authority. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Once again, this is evidence that Jesus considered himself to be one with the Father. But that's not my point. Why is it Christ's prayer that we remain in this world? Sanctified. Victorious over the evil of this world. It is essentially for the same two reasons that Christ came into this world. To teach the world about God and to share with the world the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Even so have I sent them into the world. I don't need to remind us all of the great commission with which Christ has left us and sent us. He said, go, preach, disciple, baptize. Teach those people to continue on in that sent service. These are the reasons. This is the root of our purpose in this world. This is why we have been left here. This is why we are here. To share the truth of God with the world in which we have been left. Christians, God's saints, are left in the world. This is not their home. They're not of this world. We are above this world, and yet we've been sent into this world as the Father sent his Son into the world. We have a work to do. We have the Lord's prayers behind us in this work to do. How can we even consider not being faithful? We have only X number of hours in our lives. This time should be spent for the Lord's purpose. That was a part of Jesus' prayer for us. We only have X number of dollars. Some of that belongs to the Lord in evangelism and so on. We have lips and tongues and hands. We have other talents to use in the spreading of the gospel. We have what is left of our lives to spend for the Lord's glory in this place. How can we possibly fail? 
how can we give up? We have the Lord's prayers on our behalf. In the light of those prayers, our faith should be strong. Our expectation should be high. The Lord is praying for us. Our resolve should be firm. We can do these things for the Lord. We should look for victory. We should expect victory. Jesus Christ is still praying for us. Praise his holy name. We've got a job to do. We're right. We have the Savior right there with us Amen. to do it. Amen.